0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Christian Health Service Corps Iron to Silver podcast. We hope this will be a resource for you. We hope it will be your source for insightful conversations with expert guests in the area of global health, patient safety, and improving quality of care in low and middle income countries. Join me, Greg Seeger, Christian Health Service Corps founder, and Dr. Sarah Pruitt and Dr. Kelly Frazier, as we share stories and explore strategies to improve health care in low and middle income countries.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the CHSC Podcast. Um, I am Dr. Kelly Frazier, and I have Dr. Sarah Pruitt with me, and we are really honored to have um, two very special guests with us today, and that is Scott and Josie Gwynn. They are the um, co-founders and directors of the Resilience Resource, and uh, we had the privilege of working with them uh, through Samaritan's Purse at the time, and we worked together in the DRC under an Ebola response, and Sarah and I were just so impressed by these individuals that as soon as we um, were um, setting up this podcast, they were really among the top of the list of people we wanted on um, when it came to um, thinking about um, quality on the mission field, global health, um, and how to do things really well. Um, So welcome, Scott and Josie Gwynn. Um, We're really excited to have you. And let's just start by having you tell us about your background and a little bit about the Resilience Resource and introduce it to us.
2: Well, thanks, Kelly and Sarah, so much for having us on. Um, Yeah, it's just been a a privilege to spend uh, the time we had been able to spend with the two of you over the past couple of years. And Say, I'm just so impressed by uh, just the quality of your work when we first met both of you, and just such a gift to serve alongside each other, and yeah, different capacities around the world. So thank you for having us on together. And um, actually, the Resilience Resource is just coming up on our third anniversary. Uh, We launched a couple of years ago, uh, really seeing a, a gap in crisis care and resilience building, tools and resources for humanitarian aid, uh, missions, workers, uh, organizational personnel and communities around the world that were experiencing, crisis, uh, critical incident, uh, challenging experiences. Um, but really, our care for traumatized people is kind of a thread that's really run through both of our lives for most of our lives uh, with a couple of pivot points that brought things to the surface.
3: Yeah, I was a. I'm a preacher's kid, and my my dad was a pastor for a church for the deaf in Denver. So so constantly dealing with a marginalized population in that community. Josie's family started an NGO working with orphans in the Philippines, and then or, or kids in the Philippines in the slums, and then orphans in Romania as it as it transitioned, and that work is still going. So she's been in the the mission slash humanitarian aid for my life. I won't tell how many years. I guess. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, um, so, the, so this thread has continued. It it, it hit a climax in '99 when we were when we lived in Southwest Denver and were um, part of the community that where Columbine High School shooting happened, and that changed the face of trauma in so many different ways, or trauma care in so many different ways, and and kind of ushered in a new normal for crisis in the United States, um, with school shootings. And then we went into first responder. Um, we were both firefighters. I was for 12, Josie joined me six years into that. So we were, we were both, um, firefighters for her for six years and me for 12. And then we, we converted that into, had the opportunity to do some humanitarian aid and missions and found that the, that Everything that we had put together for law enforcement and fire for for chaplaincy care and um, and mental health care for those folks translated almost straight across to missions and humanitarian aid personnel.
2: Yeah, there's just a commonality of of mindset and response uh, in the aid and missions world that's uh, tracks very similarly to first responders. And you know this is the type of wiring that says, I'm willing to go into the the hardest places, the places where uh, suffering is is at the forefront and work to do the best within the skill sets that I have and the calling that God has given me to help meet the need to come alongside others and care and often at the expense of myself uh, and helping to integrate that understanding that care for self, resilience in self Uh, Those different tools and resources that keep us going actually result in more compassionate and empathetic care for others, uh, as well as keep each individual going longer and just creates a level of sustainability uh, that's much more robust.
1: Yeah, it's so great. I know that um, Sarah and I, when we were on the mission field, used to always say that we felt like we had more in common uh, with military personnel than with some of the other Physicians and doctors, you know, when we came back stateside, Um, and so we always felt like that there was a niche there for yeah, and actually police officers and firefighters and kind of similar things. Um, Where you kind of come home, there's a camaraderie to talk about people from your own group, but yet it's kind of hard to talk about um, with people who haven't experienced what what you just experienced. So. Um, It's amazing to hear more of your all's background. A lot of that I did not uh, even know. It's just, it sounds like the God really prepared you all to be um, doing exactly what you're doing right now. (laughs) So it's really great.
2: Yeah, we, we certainly feel that way. It's a, you know, everybody has their own unique story uh, in ways that puzzle pieces have come together, but just always that ongoing drive to see where there's gaps uh, and how, not just us, but also our team and, and different individuals within communities and organizations can come together in an integrated way to help fill those gaps, uh, in a variety yeah. of ways.
4: Yeah. You mentioned it a little bit, um, about resilience. Can you talk about that word a little bit What what, how you define that for yourself and why you chose that to be, um, the name of your, your group or your company?
2: Yeah, I think something that we've really um, dug a bit more deeply into is an understanding that, well, first of all, resilience is inherent to each one of us in in different ways. And you know, God has uh, created us with an innate level of resilience. And then resilience can also be developed. Uh, it's impacted by experiences that we go through throughout the course of our life and certainly shaped in those ways. Uh, but we've uh, continue to observe and a lot of our research, uh, has identified that when resilience is developed, that actually the, the impact and particularly the long-term effect of crisis and critical incidents is mitigated. Uh, and so, so much of what we do uh, just globally and by we, I mean kind of the collective we uh, in looking at crisis response, whether it be from a physical standpoint, medical care, or whether it's emotional, mental, or spiritual, is very reactive. And, you know, as a situation happens, we respond, we provide care. Sometimes we're there for some of the, the longer-term care pieces, but, but more often that's something where the uh, individual goes back to their family member, or their community, and they have those long-term care pieces. And what we've seen is that when resilience is developed, and there's various factors that are kind of unpacked in that developing Uh, that that individual always impacted by crisis and critical incidents, because we all are, but the longer term effects of that impact are lessened and their ability to press into really integrated recovery is greatly enhanced. Uh, We've kind of narrowed that down to, oh, between seven and 10 factors of resilience, depending on how we are unpacking it for a group or community. But the core of who we are, our identity, um, research continues to demonstrate that faith and spirituality, moral compass, meaning, and purpose are core to our resilience. Uh, and that's secular and faith-based research that demonstrates the need for an understanding of faith and spirituality, something bigger than ourselves, um, which, informs our moral compass, which determines our meaning and purpose. And, you know, certainly you see that in um, global healthcare, and particularly medical missions, that there's a core of faith and spirituality or desire to be a part of something bigger than yourself that does drive that decision-making capacity. Um, And that moves from internal to external, you know, there's some resilience factors that speak to Oh, uh, things like realistic optimism, you know, can you acknowledge that things are hard and look forward with hope, um, some different ways that, um, creative problem solving come into play, you know, can you look at a situation and, and think about different ways that, uh, you can care for yourself and others and navigating through that. So when we've seen that those factors are developed, um, we see that people come out on the other side of these, Really horrific circumstances in many cases, um, with the ability to understand and identify how it's impacted them, and then pull some tools out of their toolbox mm-hmm. to care for not just themselves, but also their family or their team or their community that has also experienced that. Uh, so it becomes a a pre um, development that directly informs post care. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, at its simplest, I would say resilience is is just navigating challenges in healthy ways, um, ways that that restore on the on the back end. And so that's there's a lot of different terminology that you'll see if you Google resilience, um, but that's what we found is the most helpful, especially when it comes to when it comes to conversations around trauma, um, and the context that we want to work in, which are some of the most difficult. In the world. Mm-hmm.
2: Resilience also speaks to an integrated component when we live in a disintegrated world uh, with messaging that continues to separate things like physical and psychological. Uh, when the reality is, and again, research continues to demonstrate that physical symptoms are, are deeply connected to psychological, emotional, and spiritual impacts and how that manifests in our body. Uh, so resilience and that term resilience, the development of it, just really sees um, and works towards restoration and that integration of all four components of who we are.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you really believe that once you go through something traumatizing and you really are able to experience that, the fact that those those are not separated things and how how really you are physically feeling and emotionally and psychologically and how everybody around you is affected as well by those things. Um, so the, everything you say is is right on. You know, how does... How do uh, you guys work? So you know, like, what are the things, practically speaking, that you do that you get involved in? Um, can an individual just say, "Hey, I just came off the field," or do you try to focus more on um, people while they're already out there and you're you're going to them, or are they coming to you? Explain to us a little bit um, how you practically get involved in in some of these situations. <laughs>
3: I, the answer to that is all of those things you said actually <laughs> happened. Um,
1: okay. so,
3: so we do, we work on a, on a pre mid and post formula when it comes to crisis. So the much of our work is done in the preparation side. We found that that resilience in itself is a lot of preparation plus adaptability equals resilience. Um, and so, so there's a ton of work done on the on the prep side and that's with even with consulting with organizations to create policies and procedures that actually care for their employees um which uh, and and then it's individual training and equipping um because it's better to be equipped prior to the crisis than to try to be equipped after it comes there's always there's just a bandwidth difference there so um so that's the the pre part of that plan the in the midst then we, we have a crisis response team that we maintain that can deploy to disasters and, and disasters being like the big global ones that make the news or the individual ones situations situations where someone, someone lost someone close to them. Someone was involved in a suicide situation, something like that. Um, those are all disasters and we don't, we, we tend to say disaster and think earthquake or think war, um, but for the, for the individual, it's, it's very different. So, um, but responding in the midst of that, what can we do to help? And the resilience resource is primarily an equipping organization. So anytime we go in to help, we're bringing equipping pieces so that people can also help themselves and their community, understanding that we won't be there most likely long-term. And,
2: Even in our coaching yeah. uh, capacity, which several members of our team do as well. Um, uh, they're certified mental health coaches, but there's an equipping piece in that because our, our goal, one of our core values is empowering the individual to understand the resilience that they already have on board and their own tools that they have in their toolbox, maybe help them, you know, round those out a little bit better. Uh, but it's a strengths-based coaching of helping them to identify the, the strengths that they already have present and how they
3: can, uh, pull those into play. And then there's aftercare, of course, after, after something has happened, what's the process that someone wants to be involved in to, to help their own healing and, re- and restore what has been lost in, through crisis? Because crisis forces us to lose things. That's what is traumatic about
2: them. A crisis is inherently transformational. You know, It turns your world upside down and inside out mm-hmm. and helping people to make sense of that context uh, and kind of understand what some steps down a path forward could look like. Uh, there's some transition pieces that are involved in our post care. Oftentimes we'll come in and provide care for a team who's had a significant transition, um, either a a leader that has been there for a period of time that is, is moving on and helping to celebrate what was and look ahead with hope to what could be. Um, maybe it's more of a crisis transition where maybe there's a loss of a leader, uh, either through, um, a death or through a situation where, um, there was a, Uh, a critical reason to remove that leader from leadership. Um, Those are crisis situations as well, and and those have far-reaching impacts. uh, As I know that you you guys know well and the different experiences that you've gone through, uh, including transitions, uh, even transitions from one country to another uh, brings its own uh, crisis stages and and need to understand grief and loss and, and processing those experiences.
1: Yeah, I think what you said even is just the um, it's not always the, the the tsunami that hit that is crisis. And I think we think of those. So then um, especially humanitarian aid workers, we're so used to working on this large scale where everything is intense and um, kind of only Ebola. Ebola is a real crisis so that if you do have a personal crisis, it seems not important or smaller or that you shouldn't be having a hard time or be traumatized by, oh, my, my leader just changed, you know, he just, or I just went to a different field. It's not a big deal. You know, it's not, we always say it's not like it's Ebola, you know. Um, but then we can end up minimizing some of these really traumatic events and not processing the way we should be processing. Um, and I think that that happens. You know, I think maybe Sarah can comment on too. Yeah. The way we minimize what could be a traumatic event to us emotionally, physically, or, or in any of those and all of those categories, because we're comparing it to these huge things that happen that we're used to being involved in.
2: Yeah. I, experiences will will be processed one way or the other, whether we choose to have them to be processed or not. Go ahead, Sarah. <laughs>
4: you know, it's going to come out, your emotions. It's just, is it going to come out in a healthy way or in a destructive way? And I think, um, Kelly and I can both attest to both of those, um, at different times in our, um, our careers and friendships and things like that. It's going to happen, but it's just, um, but no, I just love you guys so much and what you're doing. I think it's so needed. And I think it's just in, maybe in the last, you know, I was on the field for six years and came off two years ago and maybe in the last 10 years that, I feel like mission agencies have finally realized they need this (laughs) instead of just this uh, attitude of just minimize things and, Oh, it's not that bad or it's not, you know, um, but I, I'm so excited about what you guys are doing and that you guys are getting great responses and um, you know, that you're sought after to do the work that you're doing. So I think it's so needed um, in amongst humanitarian aid workers and missionaries alike. So um, thank you for, for what you guys are doing.
2: You know, it's it's a gift to see the conversation become more normalized, mm-hmm. and to see different contacts start to implement some of these tools. And you know, we're we're really passionate about people thriving in their work and um, understanding the the value of who they've create been created to be, uh, and the ways that. Um, that God has uniquely put them together that can come into play and to meet the world's need. Uh, but not in a way that destroys themselves in the process. You know, the second greatest commandment is to love others as you love yourself. And, and so it's an integrated piece that recognizes that when we're thriving in the work that we do, that's going to overflow into our care for people. And it's going to create a higher level of, Um, compassion and creativity and how we connect with others. And they see that life that's in us. It doesn't minimize our experiences. It actually acknowledges that, gosh, I'm a human being and I'm impacted too. And because of that, the commonality of my impact resonates with the commonality of your impact. And we could be in this together, like neither of us is alone. And it just helps to emphasize that sense of community and connection that is really what we were made for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the past year or so we've been heavily involved in Eastern Europe through the war in Ukraine and, and then more recently uh, in Turkey and Syria and some touch points in Lebanon uh, with the earthquake there. And then even more recently with the outbreak of war in Sudan. But interestingly enough, when we're caring for people and providing resources, certainly there's the flashpoint of crisis but typically we move on from that pretty quickly in our conversation and it's what what's desired to be talked about is what they were experiencing before it was the different circumstances and hardships that were present before this thing overlapped everything else and and um you know brought some maybe more critical symptoms uh to the surface so it's integrated into our day-to-day life. And the crises kind of bring some things to the forefront and maybe a way that helps us actually acknowledge their presence. Um, but it's that integrated relational component that does one foundation for ongoing resilience. And we talk a lot about that when we uh, provide coaching and care as well. Mm-hmm. I love that um, to hear you
4: guys talk about it because I think I I I'm maybe saying what Kelly was getting ready to say. We wish we would have had... <laughs> This to kind of uh, tap into uh, when we were on the field, um, I think we ended up suffering a lot of years because we didn't know what to do or where to go when things happened, and um, and we were, you know, a med- medical missions field uh, that typically was like, it what it is what it is, you know, and and just keep working and keep getting up, that you know, and I think it even it spurred me on, like, I just finished up some graduate work in disaster healthcare thinking I was going to go down the programming route, which I did a lot of, but I ended up more focusing on what exactly you're talking about, resilience and moral injury and how to better help um, the missionary and the humanitarian aid work. That's where my study ended up culminating at, which just became a a huge passion of mine. So I love what you guys are doing. And um, actually, I would love for you to talk a little bit about uh, moral injury and how you've, um, how you address that or how you talk about people with that. And I think that's such a, a huge piece on the humanitarian aid front, as well as the medical mission front. Um, Kelly and I and some of the other doctors used to talk about that towards the end of our time, just what that meant for us and how just recognizing it and naming it, I think went a long way um, to more, not normalize it, but make it more of a conversation instead of a oh, there's just something wrong with them or there's something you know they can't handle the job or whatever you wanted to say. but
3: you could speak about that for a minute. So moral injury is one of these. It's a term that was coined after Vietnam to describe what what some of the some of the military personnel, we're facing coming back and the conflicting emotions that came with being either commanded or voluntarily committing acts that violated their own conscience. Um, that's in a nutshell, what moral injury is. It's a wound to the soul or a, or that violates your moral compass for you. From medical personnel, medical personnel have some weird beliefs that come out usually after the fact in, in, we say that in the kindness. We, yes, we we. <laughs> from our experiences, we're self-aware.
1: Medical. We can we can admit that there's, there's that's
3: true. Medical personnel are <laughs> wonderful. In more ways
2: wonderful. than you know. <laughs> wonderful, amazing people. Yes, but, <laughs> how,
3: but one of the one of the things that results often in in a moral injurious event for medical personnel is this idea that I I have spent my money, my life, getting an education in order to save people from physical wounds from 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 physical harm from sickness from all of these things and and all all of my energy all of my finances has gone to this now i'm in a situation where it doesn't matter how much i commit to it i can't save everybody and and we've even dealt with a few um medical personnel on the field who have been (laughs) new to the field maybe Started in with gr- with great ideas of what they were doing. Maybe they were well. The one I'm thinking of was a uh, was a surgeon who was the only surgeon for miles um, for for an entire region, um, and basically came to us with the attitude of, "If I rest, people die," because I'm the only one that has the equipping to handle what people are bringing. And there's a, and people can see the logic in that. Yes, you have the tools that people need. However, there's a theological problem that says who's actually in charge of who lives and who dies. And whether you work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, or a normal shift with regular rhythms of rest, people will still die in your community. And you're not responsible for their life and death. Now the other part of moral injury that we see in in healthcare workers are those decisions that were made because you're making life and death decisions and looking at some of those and go and, and sometimes the sometimes the oh the voice in their head is saying I should have done something different. Other times it's saying I don't know what I could have done different. But there's a longing that what happened shouldn't have happened and, and wrestling with that. And that's kind of the, I, I don't know, what would you say? Would you say there's other common uh, moral injurious events for medical personnel that you've seen?
2: I think one of the the challenges with moral injury is that it's something that's integrated into your, uh, what we talked about, that i that core of identity with faith and spirituality and moral compass. It's integrated into your, your overall view of your faith and spirituality and the role that you see God playing in that. Your relationship with God will directly determine how you um, what's how your moral compass is informed and and, and then the p- potential for moral wounds uh, or soul wounds that, that could occur. And if you really um, wrestle with a perspective that says, if I do good things, good things will happen, uh they honestly had a higher risk for that occurring because we do live in a broken disintegrated world where horrible evil things do happen and they happen outside of our control. And wrestling with those bigger questions of how could a good God allow these things to occur is some of that root of, of that soul wound. And because of that, research is continuing to demonstrate that care for moral injury requires a theological and psychological intersection and we've often again tried to disintegrate those things and gone oh you just need to go see a counselor or a therapist or this is rooted in your faith if you just had enough faith you would be able to get past this point when the reality is there's big questions we don't have answers for and we have to be willing to sit in tension of i don't know and that's a struggle. It's a struggle for many people. Um, but when we look at it from a a whole perspective—a body, mind, heart, and soul, emotional, psychological, spiritual, physical—and a, a restorative wholeness view, then instead of asking the questions of how could a good God, we start to ask the questions of what does restoration in this situation look like? I can't change the reality of the situation, but what does restoration here? Uh, what could, what could that be and what steps can I take both for myself and for others in the midst of this situation to move towards restoration? And part of that is a posture towards God and, and part of your relationship, uh, being defined, uh, with God. It's also a key part of it is your relationship with yourself, your understanding of your identity and who God made you to be and your relationship with community. Mm -hmm. Um, COVID, of course, is huge for health workers. And coming alongside uh, health workers in several different contexts, including a COVID field hospital, the shifting environment and messaging was so tough because so much was unknown. You're doing the best you could with what you knew in the moment. And 24 hours later, it would turn upside down and protocols were completely different. And now we're treating this way. And of course, the mindset went, well, gosh, if I'd known then what I knew now, how many more lives could I have saved? And even the, you know, kind of as we've tracked more recently, often the demonization of healthcare workers, and you're actually causing harm to my family by putting these protocols into place or by demanding these and then healthcare care workers dealing with, am I bringing harm home to my own family by carrying this virus from my workplace into my home? Uh, and then if a family member did get sick, gosh, like, is that my fault? I caused that by doing what I thought was right to show up to work every day. And then I brought this sickness into what should be my sanctuary, my place yes. where I can recover from the stress or yes. everything. So yeah, it's been a very cumulative effect over the past couple of years on top of what people were already experiencing. Sure. And then when you talk about all of
1: those things on the individual level, especially when you're talking about a, a global health field or something, all of everybody's going through that um, in their own different way. And then we're all supposed to work together, <laughs> you know, to form a team. And I mean, obviously, it's it's a recipe for you know, just no wonder why um, often it's not just an individual level or even if you're called to work on an individual level, it ends up it has to be a team level because if the entire team doesn't understand these things, well, then someone is labeled as having a character flaw and they, they maybe should have never been on the field in the first place or all of a sudden we end up defining people uh, and things and experiences in 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 the way we handle things or from our own past experiences, not their past experiences. Um, And we can end up demonizing each other. And well, why don't you have a moral injury from this? It injures me. Does it mean that you're, what kind of person are you that that doesn't hurt you? You know, and I mean all sorts of ways that we end up um, processing unhealthily (laughs) as these things are occurring to all of us um, at, at the same time. Um yeah, w- what direction?
2: I was just going to say Go that's ahead, one of the Lizzie. values we've really seen in that preparatory piece is that it helps to establish a commonality yes. of language around these things so that the team is on the same page. When you're talking about trauma, you're recognizing that trauma is not connected to an event. It is an individual or a community because communities can uh, experience trauma as well at yes. a communal level. It's their reaction to the event. And because we all have different experiences and uh, things that we've resilience levels, things that have shaped us through our life, our reactions are understandably going to be different. And so that comparison piece then it's never helped. It's mitigated yeah. because it no. allows <laughs> yeah. you to go, well, of course, you have a different reaction. You've got a totally different background than I do and different resilience levels yeah. that I do. And so, how about we just be present in each other's reactions together? And just give grace and space for that to happen uh, and see what restoration can look like for each one of us as we come alongside each other.
1: Yeah, the common terms is huge. I mean, you know, in my own uh, recovery or trauma recovery journey, I remember in a counseling session, it was they did an education piece at first, um, you know, like PowerPoints on these some of these things that were happening. And I remember when I first saw the term secondary trauma across the board and then listing things. And I just, I broke down right there at the table being like, Oh my gosh, that's, that's me there. There I am on the screen. Uh, but the first thing I kind of said to myself is why didn't somebody tell me that? Like, why Why didn't someone just say I was experiencing secondary trauma, but, but they didn't write that my field didn't have a term for that or didn't know that or didn't know, you know, and it, but it was so healing at the same, like instantly sad to me that, well, I went that long experiencing that without help, but at the same time, like freeing that, like, oh my gosh, they're, they're there's a name for this, you know, and and because it really felt that there was a pathway forward then to be like, oh, people do know what's going on. So there must be <laughs> a path forward. Um, and so I think
4: that common vocabulary on a field is huge. Yeah, I think it takes out the um, something's wrong with me mindset, because all of a sudden now there's a definition that says, actually, well, yes, something's wrong with you. But like, this is what's wrong and like we're gonna there's steps to move forward other than just being like um you know instead of like you're just ambiguously traumatized and like there's nothing we can do about it but like you know I do agree with Kelly and like um I I felt the same way and then like also the the word that I think came out when I finally started realizing how I was traumatized and how to move forward was I felt vindicated that there was a word for it you know like I because i been led to believe that there was just something wrong with me, you know, that there was no, no way to move. Like it was my fault that I wasn't getting better, that it was all these things, but it was like, oh gosh, well, now I feel better even though I'm hurting because there other people feel this way too. And there's a re there's a way to move in a different direction. So, um, anyway, all that to say, you guys are so, such wise, so such wise people and we love what you do very much. And, uh, we wish we'd have known you before. but uh, We know that you're helping um, a ton of people and we'll continue to help a ton of people in the future. So um, can you touch a little bit on where you guys are working within the constraints of security that you can tell us and um, what, uh, what's on the horizon for you guys?
3: Sure. Well, I think I'm just to, just to kind of wrap that last Section. it's important for your audience, I think, to hear that nobody that does this kind of work does not experience some kind of secondary stress and secondary trauma. It comes with the job. And so the (laughs) only way to be resilient through it is to know that it's coming to prepare for your reactions to it and to recognize them when they happen. But it's going to happen. It's just part of the world we live in and part of the job that Mm -hmm. we've chosen to do. So it's yep. completely normal.
1: And that experiencing doesn't mean that you shouldn't have that job, you know? And I think making sure it's like, I was traumatized, therefore maybe I wasn't meant for this work. It's saying, oh no, like, <laughs> and I think a lot of people end up leaving the work um, because of their own expectations or outside expectations on them. You shouldn't, yeah. If Then maybe you're just not tough enough to, to be Called to this area uh, or something like that. So I think that's. We great. actually
2: find the opposite to be true that the people who try to maintain the mindset that nothing affects them, that they can cope with everything, are the people who um, become rigid and then eventually break in some pretty spectacular ways. It's actually the people who say, wow, this has an impact on me because God created me to be a compassionate, connected human being with feelings that are normal and okay. And that's actually what helps me connect with other human beings at a deeper relational level, whether I'm doing a simple physical or whether I'm doing brain surgery. If we disconnect from the humanity within ourselves, we will dehumanize other people. So it's actually vitally necessary in the course of this work to recognize how we're human and to fully experience that at integrated levels so that we can connect with the integration and value of other human beings. It makes you better at your work. And it's intriguing to come across this, particularly in the aid sector and oftentimes in the mission sector. Uh, And I think so much of this culture is taught even throughout medical school. Don't let anything affect you. And that just means you can't hack it if you have any, show any emotion whatsoever. Uh, And it's just such an upside down, inside out way of seeing the world. um, That really causes some pretty significant long term impacts. Um, But yeah, to circle around to where we're working right now. um, We just got back from Ukraine uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, spent some time with a community that uh, just a group of people, actually, uh, that is with one particular organization. And when they've launched a a refugee care center, so they have leaders from different communities that have come to Western Ukraine uh, for safety
3: uh, away from uh, further away from the fight in Eastern Mm -hmm. Ukraine. And. Ukraine sounds really sexy right now because because it's been on the news and everybody knows there's a war. When we say we went to Ukraine, we were in the we were far away from the front, um, and that will be typical of our of of our responses. We're we're not necessarily the ones that are that have the best equipping to go into the front lines and and provide what those guys need. Matter of fact, we probably cause a problem because they're more worried about protecting us than they are doing the job that's in front of them. So we are first, just out of the first responder world, the first rule is, is don't cause any further harm or further distress. So we're going, no matter where we respond, we're going to respond from the periphery. And if we go in, it's going to be at the request of some uh, of someone who has mitigated the the circumstances for themselves as well as for us. In ways that are most beneficial for the community. And
2: that said, there is some uh, pretty significant research in the past couple of years about the value of, um, it's actually a a medical term too, but the value of the golden hours, the the first 24 to 48 hours of care and uh, realizing that that applies in a psychological and emotional capacity as well. And so when uh, things like psychological first aid or um, mental health crisis care tools can be provided within that first 24 to 48 hours after a crisis or critical incident, long-term effects can be significantly mitigated, including potentially the prevention of things like PTSD or moral injury. Uh, So really working to help equip leaders and communities to have those tools in their toolbox, Um, you know, certainly can come in and can come alongside them and providing that directly after a crisis or disaster. Uh, but then also helping them to have those tools on hand so that as they're present in the front lines of response, uh, they've already got that on board. They already feel equipped, uh, to provide holistic crisis care. And we often circle back around to that. Um, there's times that we're providing physical first aid, ourselves because that's a part of crisis care. If somebody doesn't feel safe, if they're dealing with a medical issue, mm-hmm. if they're dealing with a wound, they're not going to sit there and talk to you about their
3: emotional.
1: <laughs> 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 I'm <laughs> bleeding, <laughs> bleeding here.
3: Not <in> <laughs> <Honest> as <and> helpful as <laughs> they're bleeding out.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we really advocate for people to have that perspective um, of that holistic piece. and um, because of that a core part of our organization is collaboration um, being, being widely connected to a variety of organizations and communities that can provide a spectrum of care. If somebody needs housing uh, you know if they're at, at fear for them and their children's safety, we want to be able to connect them to an organization that does that. We don't have to do that but we can help provide that for them. And once that load is taken off of their mind, then we can be present and talking about maybe some of the emotional, psychological, even spiritual things that they might be wrestling with.
1: That's great. And on that vein, how do you um, tell us ways that people can um, try to connect with you all if they're an organization and they want to uh, be a connection point, um, knowing that they have housing for people or whatever uh, it might be, or how can people get involved in what you're
2: doing um, or just follow what you're doing? Sure. So we, uh, you know, as all organizations must in this day and age, have an online presence. Uh, you can check out our website at theresilienceresource.org. Uh We also have a, a social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. So some of our, Information is posted there, different projects that we're involved in, different needs. And we have a bi monthly um, resource report that actually contains different links for current research, uh, things that are trending in the holistic crisis care world, as well as some brief updates about uh, some activities that. Uh, we might have just recently been involved in or planning for, uh, we've also just launched a couple of, uh, two and a half day trainings called compassionate care and crisis. So oh. if leaders or, uh, communities, churches are desiring to become more trauma informed trauma equipped, uh, those trainings would be great to check out. We have one in a couple of weeks in Denver and then, uh, another one at the end of June or early July in Minneapolis. And uh, people can find more information about that on our website as well. Um, we're also a nonprofit, So uh, we have a small and engaged donor team. Um, but we also foundationally believe that those that are experiencing the flashpoint of crisis or critical incident should not ever be approached with any kind of financial request. Uh, so we build a, a scholarship fund for training as well as a fund that allows for the provision of care in the midst of crisis at no charge to people who are experiencing, uh, that crisis and including even some longer term sessions of mental health coaching and, and support, uh, whether that's remote or in person.
3: So we actually won't respond if, if there's not a sponsor for the response. So whether that's private, whether that's private donna- donations or organizations that get together, we will not charge people for care, the care that they need when they're on the front lines. And they, and again, that's the don't exacerbate the problem, um, mindset. So, so we, when something happens, we start to collect e- either from the donor pool or from organizations. How can we collaborate together to coordinate a response here? Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say the best way to get involved with what TR is doing is get equipped yourself to care for yourself and your community. Because that's, that's the goal. We can't be there in the golden hours. We never can it, that it'll take us 24 hours to get to Ukraine. If some if a new thing happens. Mm-hmm. So people in the community have to be equipped to do that. And your community is no different. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were in South, um, uh, Southwest Florida and when hurricane Ian hit our community, it was us in our community that had the tools during the golden hours when it was most vital. And that's going to be you and your community as well.
4: That's great. Such good words. So thank you guys so much for joining us. We really um, just love what you do. Appreciate your time. Uh, Thank you for all the amazing information and
2: uh, for being a guest on our podcast today. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for having us. It just is always a joy to spend time with the two of you and uh, just love our conversation. Love the work (laughs) that you guys are doing as well. I know that you also are working to equip communities uh, in various capacities and hospitals and just excited to see what's to come in the days ahead for you.
1: Thank awesome. You. Thank you. Please check out the resilienceresource.org. Please donate to them if you love what they're doing or you've been um, impacted uh, by them or someone you know um, is in need of their services. And uh, we look forward to next time. Hey,
0: everyone. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Christian Health Service Corps Iron to Silver podcast. You know, Christian Health Service Corps, we are passionate about bringing quality health care to the world's poorest places. If you share our passion, we'd love to hear from you. Our website is www.healthservicecorps.org. Thank you again for joining us this week.